0: So glad to see all of you here today. My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here at the Vine. And uh, yeah, we got a lot to be thankful here for here today in February, right? Looked at the forecast this morning. Going to be nearing 60 next week. I think that's unheard of in February. Come on. Has anybody, I'm honest, honest question. Has anybody ever seen it be 60 in February who's lived in Wisconsin? Okay. Well, I'm a newbie here. I'm new. All right. It's only been six years or so, so, man, we have much to be thankful for. Um, we are in the book of 1 Peter, and those of you that are new here today, uh, we're about in the center of 1 Peter. We, we love to walk through books of the Bible. That's kind of how we um, teach God's Word here. And so we're going to be looking at chapter 3 starting in verse 8 today, okay? But let's set a little context, you know? Whenever we're trying to understand our Bible, we always want to see our Bible in context. And again, if you're new here today, what we're going to talk about today has what's preceded it in mind, okay? And so let's just review this. All that we've been preaching on the last few weeks has been under the kind of heading of chapter 2, verse 12. And look at it with me, chapter 2, verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So Peter's writing to a church in an ancient modern-day Turkey, or groups of churches. Uh, You'll see that in in verse 1 and 2 there of chapter 1. And he's writing to them, and he's saying basically how you carry yourself is a big deal. Keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, 212. That just means those that aren't believers are looking at you, who are believers, and so what you say out of your mouth needs to connect with how you actually live. Okay, he's like, if y'all want to be effective, if you want to be a real beautiful church, it can't just be talk, it's got to be walk as well. And then what he does is he breaks down lots of different scenarios for what honorable conduct looks like. And so in reference to a government, and maybe a government who might not even be that great, how can you conduct yourselves honorably and make Jesus look good and make his church look good? He talks about, uh, reference to like employers and employees would be a modern day application for us. Um, Back then it was servants and masters. And how do you interact in that situation in a way that's honorable, in a way that the world looks in and goes, wow, there's something unique about these Jesus people. And then he talks about wives in reference to their husbands. And even if they have unbelieving husbands. And then he talks about husbands in relation to their wives. And how are you guys going to work together? So that what you display demonstrates that what's coming out of your mouth is, is the real deal. And that's kind of a summary of the last few, four or five weeks here at the Vine. All under the heading of chapter 2, verse 12. And now, he kind of sums it all up. He kind of sums it all up. And we are looking at verse 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12 today. And I'll just tell you what the, what the point is, and then you can tell me afterwards if you're convinced, all right? So the point today is this, he says to the church, everybody, we're not talking just about like subgroups and stuff, we're talking about everybody in the church, no matter who you are, no matter where you find yourself, here's what I want. I want you to carry yourself with a supernatural gentleness because this is the pathway to blessing. I want you to carry yourself with supernatural gentleness because this is the pathway to to blessing. Look at verse 8 with me. He says, finally, because he's been talking about all these different groups, he says, I'm summing it up now. Finally, all of you, here's what I want you to do have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. All right? Finally, all of you, so the whole church, the gathered body of believers, he who has honorable conduct in mind for this whole church, it's going to look like something. No matter who you are, no matter what your role is, here's the target we're aiming at. Here's what we're shooting for, he's saying in verse 8. This is what's going to make a thriving, beautiful church that can stand against any number of persecutions or resistance those that are coming alongside you and thinking you're crazy and want to tear you down. Here's what he says. Finally all of you. Here's what I want church. Here's what I want church. Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. And as I was thinking about this this week, and there's five things here, how could we group them together? What's the kind of the common denominator here of verse 8 and these different things that he's exhorting, these different uh, commands that he has for the church and imperatives for the church? And the word that came to mind for me this week was gentleness. That kind of unites all these together, gentleness. Like think of someone right now, think of someone right now in your life who you would qualify or that you would categorize as gentle. Just think of somebody. And then look at these attributes in verse 8. Do they embody those five attributes? Unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, a humble mind. I bet they do. Or they're real close. Now, think of the opposite of these things. Imagine an organization whose core values for their members was the opposite of verse 8. Imagine if Peter would have written, okay, finally, all of you, church, here's what I want you to do. Do your own thing. Independently. Don't care about anybody else. Love only those who are convenient to love. Carry yourself with harshness. And no matter what, always think that you're right. Now, what kind of organization would that create? What would an unbelieving world see in that kind of group of people? They would see a disaster, right? They would just see a disaster. They would see an organization that's destined to implode real quick, right? Peter's saying, look, look, the, the onlooking world already wants you to implode. And I'm writing you verse 8 so that you don't help them with that. Don't add any fuel to their fire. Remember, remember what at stake. You're a persecuted minority. And, and this thing, this church thing, you know, God has said that, that nothing is going to slow it down because Jesus has promised to build his church. That's the sovereign promise of God, and we know that's true. But in light of that, we also have a responsibility. So our responsibility in the process of seeing that happen is verse 8. Okay? And right now, because of who you are, finding yourself in under the Imperial Roman Empire, in in in, in, in small communities, in in ancient modern or what what is modern day Turkey? And there's there's no mega churches, like this would have probably been a mega church back then in that part of the world. Okay? This thing is fragile. And there's a lot of pressure from the outside of people thinking you guys are crazy and would just love for you to go away. So don't add pressure to yourselves, church, through internal conflict on the inside. Like this thing needs to last. So let's build something beautiful through how we carry ourselves. And that's verse 8. kind of reminds me of some trips that we've taken. Now, if you're new here, we, we have two—we uh, have one main emphasis, and that's what we, we want to be, a church-planting church. That's part of how we do mission. We want, to, we want to reproduce ourselves. We want to multiply ourselves. We want to see just different, like, cities on a hill that shine brightly all throughout Madison—that's neighbors—and also all throughout the world. So we have two different— uh, locations throughout the world that we focus on for the sake of church planting. One is in North Africa, and one is in Ecuador. And in, I've taken a few trips now to North Africa in our target country. And one of the things that I've learned is that this kind of 1 Peter 3, 8 dynamic is very alive there in ways that we don't experience it here. So over there, you know, you've got an underground church where it's illegal for a native to convert, and there could be harsh penalties, um, the, the, the public church doesn't exist. The above-ground church doesn't exist. There are pockets of underground churches, you know, in big cities and stuff. But one of the big problems is this. Oftentimes, the challenge for that church to continue and to thrive is not because of persecution from the outside. It's simply because people have a hard time doing verse 8. Think about it like this. You're in a group of 10 people— And you're the only Christians that you know in a city of a million, you are the church. But what happens when half of that room you don't really like? You don't really get along with? They're kind of annoying. They kind of bug you. When they talk, you don't want to listen. You know what I'm saying? Like it's hard to get along. That's a fragile church. And it's hard to be united, and it's hard to have brotherly love, and it's hard to be tender toward these folks, and it's hard to have a humble mind. See, verse 8 would be one of these verses that would bless church planting efforts in the hardest places in the world. It's going to bless any church, honestly. But even more so when, man, like this thing is so fragile because we're underground and the government hates us and I might get thrown out of my family if they know I'm a Christian or they might even threaten to kill me or I might lose any semblance of inheritance I might have. This thing is fragile already. Man, we got to come together. We got to come together and have brotherly love and unity of mind and sympathy and a tender heart and a humble mind. So, I mean, I feel that. And I think that's somewhat analogous to what Peter's getting at in this original context of probably house churches scattered all throughout ancient modern-day Turkey. But he, it's, here's the deal. There's the same thing for us. Imagine this, okay? We're not talking going across the ocean now to plant churches, but we're, we're talking about planting churches here in Madison. And the first way that we do that is, God willing, we're hoping to share our faith and see God raise the spiritually dead, see people come to Christ. And so let's say that happens. You share your faith with your neighbor. They become a Christian. It's like, wow, I became a Christian, so what do I do now? Well, I'd love for you to like, be a part of our church. Oh, yeah, I can come to church. Oh, but there's one problem. We kind of gossip about each other a lot. And there's a couple families that just frankly hate each other. And they can't get it worked out. And we argue about the color of the carpet. And we've take, taken minor things and made them major things. And the major things, we've kind of made them into minor things. And we're kind of, you know, fraying at the edges a little bit at this church. So honestly, let's just you and me hang out because this church thing, I don't know if I can really recommend it. Like, What? That's not what God's mission is all about. Jesus died to make his bride, the church, pure and spotless. Not ugly and fighting. The onlooking world already wants you to implode. Don't help them with that, Peter says. That's why he says, finally, all of you, here's what I want for the church. To have permanence. When it's, when it's marginalized, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Man, that's the kind of church I want to be a part of. That's the kind of church you want to be a part of. Why? Because it'll last. It's not going to implode, right? Because we love each other so well. These, the, these five attributes, man, think about it. Does this is not create just the kind of organization you'd want to be a part of? It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Beautiful, absolutely beautiful. And this week as I was prepping this message, I was thinking about, man, what's a great illustration of this? What's an an illustration of an organization that really embodies these values and just is doing a great job at that? And it just like dawned on me, like, well, duh, it's right in front of me. It's it's this church. It's this church. So many of you have done such an amazing job at embodying verse 8 the spirit of gentleness that's reflected in verse 8. And we should be encouraged. We're not perfect. There is no perfect church. But man, I feel like we're heading in the right direction. Your elders feel like we're heading in the right direction. There's lots of examples of, of what we see. The, the biggest one right now might be just this building project. And Scott has, has uh, been overseeing this. Um, if you're new here, Scott is an uh, elder and co-pastor here uh, on staff. And he's been overseeing our building project. God willing, we'll have a new building in, in a few weeks. And he was sharing with the elders the other day just how this has been really amazing for him in that, man, we've had some kind of nasty jobs that we've had to do. Demo, dirty, dusty, wearing the mask, getting all messy, you know. It's kind of like Mike Rowe and that show Dirty Jobs. You guys remember that show? Like a lot of this stuff has not been real glamorous, and, and here's what he said that was so powerful. He said, I haven't heard one person complain. That's beautiful. That, that's verse 8, kind of living. Being united. We're united around this project. Just the giving, man. When we, when we laid out the, the, the pathway for giving to pull off this project, part of me was like, whoa, this is, this is significant. Man, but you guys stepped up. You guys stepped up in beautiful ways. That reflects unity of mind, brotherly love, sisterly love, tender hearts, humble mind. Not just like, I'm all about myself. Heck no, I'm not going to give. No, man, I'm going to give because we got to be in this together. It's been beautiful. It's been beautiful. We don't have a lot of family infighting. Now, listen, are we perfect? No. Every family, if it's a real family, has to navigate conflict. So do we have conflict? Yeah, we have conflict Sometimes. That's just part of the deal. But we haven't seen like massive and people just digging their heels in and just relationships fractured all the time. That's not who we are. Man, we have something to be thankful for. That's indicative of what Peter's describing here, of a church that's beautiful, has permanence. We haven't seen people like constantly griping and holding grudges and gossiping. Man, gossip just destroys churches. But we don't I don't think we're known for that. Are we perfect? No, but we're headed in the direction of when we fail, we want to repent and start over again and seek forgiveness and reconciliation, and that's happened. It is happening, and that will happen. There's a gentleness among you that's evidence of the Spirit of God working in us in 1 Peter 3, 8 type ways. So we're thankful. We're thankful. You should be thankful. Your leaders are thankful for you. Be encouraged this morning. I mean, I just think of the needs channel on Slack. If you're new here again, Slack is our online communication system, just an app on the computer, or on your phone, and how we communicate with each other at a church this size. And there's a channel on there, or just like a little category, where you can post needs. All the time, I'm, I'm looking at that thing almost daily. Hey, I got a need for this. Someone jumps in. I can fulfill that need. Hey, I got a need for this. Five people respond. Yeah, we can hook you up with that. I mean, it's just awesome. It's awesome. It's beautiful. That's indicative of verse 38. So let's just keep it going. Let's keep it going. Let's, 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 let's shoot for this. Now, on an individual level, none of us live up to this perfectly, right? I, I don't. I have gossiped. I've been harsh. I've not been perfectly gentle. I've been prideful. I've been, sadly, in, in, in churches I've been in, in my whole life, I've, I've in subtle ways, or maybe not a subtle ways, sown disunity. And that's bad. That's sin. And some of you understand that that's true for you as well. And this is when the the gospel comes crashing in and invades this space that might be full of condemnation and casts it out. The gospel says that because Jesus died for our sins and took our place on the cross and bore the punishment that we deserve for these sins of harshness and gossip and pride, we, we're not defined by these things anymore. Jesus has taken that which wants to define us. I'm just a fallen, broken, ugly sinner. Yes, that's true, but you've been given a new nature. You've been given a new identity. That doesn't define you anymore. Jesus and his perfection now defines you as you're united to him by faith. So now what happens? You're free to be open about your sin. You're free to confess your sin. You're free to ask for forgiveness for your sin and experience reconciliation for that sin because the cross bore that sin and the empty tomb says that you're empowered now to live a new life by faith in Jesus and what he's done. So do you believe that? Do you believe that? So there's room for massive encouragement on a corporate level of verse 8. On an individual level, we all fall short. But here's the last thing I'll say about this. Here's the power to live not in slavish fear of either, I'm not measuring up to verse 8, or kind of getting prideful, because, yeah, I'm kind of I'm I'm killing it here. here. Here's the power to pull this off. Reflecting on the facts, reflecting on the gospel, And seeing how God has been all of these things toward us. Right? So in the gospel, I see that God has been tender and humble towards me. God Himself has been tender and humble towards me. Go home and and, and read and memorize Philippians 2 1 through 9. You'll see God has been tender and humble with us in Jesus at the cross. He's been so gentle with us. He's been so loving towards us. Romans 5, 8, while God demonstrates, you wanna know how God loves you? God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You wanna know that God loves you? He's been so loving to us. And all of these attributes that Peter is commending to this church for the sake of their sustenance and perseverance are found in how God has treated us. So you want to know the power to pull off verse 8 in your life? It's remembrance. It's remembrance. This is how God has treated me. Thank you, Jesus, for treating me this way. Let that humble you. Let that blow your mind. Let that cause you to overflow with thanksgiving. And then guess what happens? I look to my left and look to my right and go, man, how can I not treat TJ or Bryce or Darren or my wife or my kids in the same way? right? Because that's how God has treated me. So thankful, right? So this is the way that God has treated us in the gospel. If we really get that and meditate on that, living in light of this comes out naturally over time. So this is what Peter wants the church to do. In light of where you are, in light of what you're up against, in light of the challenges, Here's what I want you to do, church. All of you, no matter who you are, where you're coming from, whatever, class, race, education, whatever, old, young, all of you together in the church, really diverse, here's what I want you to do. Verse 8. All right? And now he turns in verse 9 to tell us what he doesn't want us to do. Okay? What the church should not do. Okay? Let's look at verse 9. Here's what I don't want you to do. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Now that's tempting, right? Especially if you're being persecuted. If there's there's people coming in and saying, Christianity, that's nuts. Or people discriminating you at work because of your faith. Or people cheating you out financially some way because of your faith or whatever. That happens back here, obviously. Or we wouldn't be writing this. And it happens in our world today, too. But here's what he says do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, here's what I want you to do again bless. For to this you were called. Why? So that you may obtain a blessing. So, verse 9 this is not the honorable conduct I have in mind. This is not the way that the world will be won when they look at the church. Don't pursue revenge. Why? Because blessing is better than revenge. Don't pursue revenge. Because blessing is better than revenge. This week I was meditating on a a story in our country from the not-so-distant past that perfectly embodies this. October 2nd, 2006— It was a typical fall day. Birds could be heard in the distance, and little else except maybe the clip-clop of a horse's hooves and the rattling of a buggy heading down a back country road. It's normally quiet and peaceful in the rolling Amish farmlands of Lancaster, Pennsylvania. But that peace was shattered when the sound of gunfire was heard from inside an Amish school. When local police broke into the one-room Amish schoolhouse, they found 10 Amish girls ages 6 to 13 had been shot by Charles Roberts, who had then committed suicide. Thankfully, five of the girls survived being shot. Horrifically, five died on the spot or later in the hospital. Charles Roberts was a milk truck driver who serviced the local community, including the farms of some of the victims' families. Nine years earlier, he and his wife, Amy, gave birth to their first child, a baby girl. However, the baby died after living only 20 minutes. Apparently, his daughter's death affected him greatly. He never forgave God for her death and eventually planned to get revenge. On the morning of October 2nd, Robert said goodbye to two of his own children at the school bus stop. Then drove to the West Nickel Mines Amish School. When he walked in the door, some of the children recognized him. That day, the school had four adult visitors. The teacher's mother, her sister, and two sisters-in-law. One of the women was pregnant. When the young teacher saw his guns, she and her mother left the other adults with the children and ran to a nearby house for help. A call was made to 911. The pregnant visitor was trying to comfort Seven-year-old Naomi rose when Roberts ordered the adults to leave. Then he told the boys to leave. The boys huddled near an outhouse to pray. Roberts had the ten girls lie down facing the blackboard, and he tied their hands and feet. Roberts told the girls he was sorry for what he was about to do, but, quote, I'm angry at God, and I need to punish some Christian girls to get even with him. When the state police arrived, Roberts ordered them to leave the property or he would shoot. He told the girls, I'm going to make you pay for my daughter. One of the girls, 13-year-old Marion, said, shoot me first. Roberts began shooting each of the girls before finally shooting himself. When the police broke into the school, two of the girls, including Marion, were dead. Naomi Rose died in the arms of a state trooper. Unbelievable horror. Sickening. I mean, I got, I got two daughters the same age. Well, I could barely get through this this week in preparation. How, how do we normally respond in a situation like this? I can tell you how I, w- how I would respond. Revenge would be the first thing on my mind, I promise you. No mercy, all justice. That's going to be my knee jerk. I mean, I just can't imagine the, the prison of grief that these poor families endured and are probably still enduring in some ways. But here's what's so amazing about this story. Listen to the testimony from the shooter's wife. Now, the shooter's wife had no idea that her husband was so unstable and so angry and so darkly depressed and off she he hid this stuff from her even so she's as shocked and rattled as almost everybody else so the night that night um she's with her parents obviously to 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 receive support and comfort and here's what she wrote about that just hours after the horrible shooting My father greeted a group of, so this is the father-in-law of the shooter. My father greeted a group of Amish men who knocked on the door. An Amish man with a long gray beard stepped toward my father and opened his arms wide. My father fell into those arms, his shoulders heaving, held and comforted by a friend. Grief met grief. In the midst of their grief over this shocking loss, the Amish community didn't cast blame. They didn't point fingers. They didn't hold a press conference with attorneys at their sides. Instead, they reached out with grace and compassion toward the killer's family. The afternoon of the shooting, an Amish grandmother... Of one of the girls who was killed, expressed forgiveness toward the killer, Charles Roberts. The same day, Amish neighbors visited the Roberts family to comfort them in their sorrow and pain. Later that week, the Roberts family was invited to the funeral of one of the Amish girls who had been killed. And Amish mourners outnumbered the non Amish at Charles Roberts, the killer's funeral. It's ironic that the killer was tormented for nine years by the premature death of his young daughter. He never forgave God for her death. Yet, after he cold-bloodedly shot 10 innocent Amish schoolgirls, the Amish almost immediately forgave him and showed compassion toward his family. In a world at war and in a society that often points fingers and blames others, this reaction was unheard of. Many reporters and interested followers of the story asked, how could they forgive such a terrible, unprovoked act of violence against these innocent lives? Great question. Great question. How could they do that? How could they do that? What would you say? Only those who understand the depth of their own forgiveness by God have the true power of the Holy Spirit to forgive and show mercy in the face of such unthinkable evil and cruelty. It sounds a lot like, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Does it not? I think those people understood that. And notice that this story is still being told to this day. Why? Because this kind of mercy, forgiveness, gentleness is truly supernatural. See, it doesn't take the power of God to seek revenge. That's just normal. That's just the way the world works, right? Everyone understands that revenge is normal human behavior. Had the Amish responded with revenge through insults or lawsuits, no one would tell this story because that's just normal. That's just normal. That doesn't a- no reporters are going to ask, How could you do that? No, because we understand how people do that. But the supernatural gentleness and grace of God working itself out through people who bless and don't take revenge, that's abnormal. That's unique. That's a story worth telling. That makes people stand up and take notice. These people are are unique. I don't think I understand them, but it's beautiful. Because it's truly supernatural, and this shines a huge spotlight on what makes Christians tick. And that's what Peter's getting at. If if you seek to bless instead of taking revenge, and, and keep in mind, God just doesn't sweep it under the rug. Revenge will come. The the Lord says he will repay. He will deal with it all. And he says, trust me, you don't have to do it. I got it. You don't have to do it. I got it. Trust me. Okay? So if you bless instead of seeking revenge and leave revenge to the Lord, people get a front row seat to the supernatural beauty of God and his people living in light of the gospel. See that? Verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called. Why? That you may obtain a blessing. The text says that we're called to this. God himself, the God of the universe, he speaks and he calls his church to this, to verse 9. For to this you were called. Why? Why does God want us to leave revenge to him And be like Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Seek to bless instead of seeking revenge. Why does he want that? Why does he want that for his people? Even those that persecute us. What does God want us to be motivated by? Why would he call us to this? Well, what does it say? Look at it. End of verse 9. What does it say? What's the motivating statement? That you may receive a blessing. that you may obtain a blessing. Did you know that God wants to bless you? Some of us might feel like kind of uncomfortable like that. Is that kind of arrogant to say that God wants to bless me? Like would I dare believe that like the God of the universe wants to bless little old me? Well, evidently it's right there. That you may obtain a blessing. Here's what I want you to do. You want a blessing? Do it this way. If you want to be blessed, live this way. Isn't, isn't this dawned on me this week? Isn't it beautifully freeing to know that God is not holding out on you? You know, He's told you what it takes to live the blessed life, and here's one way. Isn't it beautifully freeing to know that God is not holding out on you? He wants to bless you. All right. So, last question: What's the nature of this blessing? What's the nature of this blessing? Well, thanks for asking. He tells us. Here's where the blessing is found. Let's keep reading. Verse 10. Here's the foundation for what he just said. Here's the, the argument that supports what he just said. Whoever, he's quoting Psalm 34 here right now. So, he, so he's, he's, he's quoting Scripture to support his point as he's writing Scripture, okay? Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Well, why? Well, because there's a blessing. The blessing is verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. So eyes and ears. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So what's the nature of the blessing? Do you see the blessing here in the text? Does God say, If you live this way, you're going to be blessed with health and money. doesn't say that, does it? If you live this way, you're going to have a perfect body and get lots of attention. If you live this way, you're going to have a great job and a great uh, 401K. That's not what it says. What does God say is the blessing? It's verse 12. It's metaphorical, but it's clear. God's eyes are on you, and his ears are open to you. What does that imply? He's near you. He's with you. He's for you. He's in communion with you, right? But, last line, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So the blessing here is that when we carry ourselves in the way of verse 9, we experience the presence of the Lord. Blessing is not toys and treats from God. That's just idolatry of the stuff that God has made and given. Blessing is not getting his stuff. Blessing is getting him. Blessing is getting God himself. Being with him, being known by him, and, and knowing him, having him with us and for us and hearing us. And the good news is in the gospel, it's all right there for you. Jesus says, come to me and drink, I am the source of living water, and if you come to me and drink, living water is going to pour out of you, and that's the Holy Spirit. And that empowers you to do this stuff, to be blessed by God, right? Peter's saying if you don't pursue revenge but instead blessing others, you get a blessing. The blessings is the presence of God in your life. He will be near you. So let me ask you, great question, what do you want? What do you want? Do you want the Lord or do you just want His stuff? Do you want to feel that He's near? Do you want to know that His face is turned towards you? God, not His gifts, are the blessing. Do you desire Him? Do you want to draw near Him? Do you want Him to be with you? That's the essence of blessing, not His stuff. But him, himself, God has come near to us, seen first and foremost in Jesus in space, time, and history 2,000 years ago. And he laid down his life for those that might listen to those questions that I just asked and go, "Uh, your stuff's pretty cool. Or, yeah, I kind of want to believe God, but my sin, it's pretty enticing. And honestly, in the short term, it makes me feel pretty good. God himself has come near graciously in space, time, and history so that that muddled motivation and cloudiness, he died for that. So that you can come to him and say, Lord, I believe, and I'm kind of a mess. Help my unbelief. I want to want you. I know I don't want you as I should. Lord, would you help me? Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. He's saying, all who are willing to come, come and be blessed. And I'm going to empower you to live in this way that we're outlining here in this text so that the church can be strong and and be blessed and and continue in the world with power. But it, it doesn't go any beyond this simple question. What do you want? Do you want God? Do you want to know his nearness? Because if the answer is yes, blessing awaits. And it's not health and wealth. It's God Himself. So, this is the motivation for how we carry ourselves as a church. And so, we step into it together. This is is Peter's call to the early church church, all of you together, carry yourselves with supernatural gentleness because this is the pathway to blessing. Why? Because then the world's going to stand up and take notice of the beauty of Jesus. And his people, and you'll know that it's all about him, and you'll have the glory and the greatness of the emotion of knowing that it's not about you, it's about him, and you've got to be a part of it. And you see beauty, and you love it, and are in awe of it as we take our eyes off ourselves and place them squarely on Jesus. Let's pray.